Okay, we're live. Welcome. I'm Peter Dow, and this is Direct Left on Calling. Uh, if you haven't yet, please sign up for the newsletter at directleft.com. Today, my guest is my friend and political colleague, Jason Call. Uh, last week, Jason and I talked about his childhood, his personal background, etc., and what led him to run for Congress uh, in Washington State. In this conversation, I want to talk to Jason more about his background, but then get into more of the current details of the campaign. Uh, Hey, Jason, how's it going? It's going well, Peter. Thank you again. And Leela. Excellent. So, so we talked last week's conversation was really fascinating because, you know, I I know you pretty well, but I learned a lot of interesting stuff about your background and how you grew up and, you know, politically and your family, et cetera. And it was, it was great. Um, you know, there are a few more things that I'd like to wrap up that we didn't discuss last time. Um, you you said you were did restaurant work? Yeah, I have done all aspects of restaurant work except uh, management. Uh, and uh, you know, you get a you get a good perspective on um, how hard restaurant work is. Um, you know, and and. I think there's a, a sense out there uh, like there's skilled labor and there's unskilled labor and um, having having done what is considered uh, unskilled labor by many, I can tell you one, it's not unskilled. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you have to be really on your toes. You have to have, you know, you have to have a lot of skills to make a restaurant function um, effectively uh, or at least be a part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, if I, when, when I see people posting, um, on social media about unskilled labors, I'm, I feel often compelled to <laughs> step in and, and, uh, and want to say something about that. Um, I mean, these are all, you know, all, it's all part of our economy. It's all part of our functioning economy, um, you know, to get, to get, uh, good food to a table in a timely manner. And, uh, like I said, I've, I've done the back of the house work. I've done dishwashing. I've done cooking. I run a, I run a broiler on a Friday and Saturday night. And so been the focal point of, uh, essentially running an entire kitchen and making sure all the food gets out. I've done prep cook. I've done, uh, and I've done, I've done waiting tables, um, and it's all fun, and there's a lot of great people in restaurant work, um, and uh, it's it is it is a skilled job that I feel uh, should be uh, compensated. And one of one of the things that really bothers me is that that restaurant work is in many places uh, still at I think it's at two thirteen an hour is the wage, and then they expect you to rely on tips and people coming into the restaurant. Um, and that is for waiting tables. Uh, mm. But people coming to the restaurant are assuming maybe that you're getting a full wage uh, and you're not. You're really you're really relying on them to t- tip you for good service. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I could talk about about being in the restaurant talking, including, you know, uh, the time that uh, they didn't get their um, hood and duct work you know, that, that does all the exhaust from, yeah. from the grills and they didn't get it clean properly. And they had the smoke billowing out in the kitchen. And I, and I let a walk out and said, we're not going back. Uh, we're not going Good. back to work. They wanted us to work through it. And it was just, it was horrible. And oh, that's, I, that's dangerous. I basically, I, you know, I had these coworkers looking at me, you know, we're going to get fired. And I was like, you know, first of all, they're not going to fire. Second of all, your health is not, you know, not uh, uh, less important than than making sure this kitchen is running. So, yeah, and, and let me and, and let me say, 
restaurant work is something we have in common. So when I came, when I finally escaped uh, Lebanon and I uh, went to NYU, um, my first job, actually my second job, um, my first job was helping uh, kids get financial aid, uh, high school kids. But my second job, I was, I was in a class and a friend of mine said, you know what, there's this opening for a barback, which is an assistant to a bar- bartender in this place down on Fifth Avenue in New York. I was one of, I was in, you know, living in, in Manhattan at the time when I was attending NYU. And I said, okay, I'll try it. So it turned out to be this really, really cool sort of downtown New York spot. Uh, you know, one table would be Andy Warhol. The other would be Grace Jones. It was just absolutely a wild, wild scene. And that was my introduction to New York's nightlife. And then I uh, got promoted to bartender. And then just like you, Jason, I ended up doing every manner of, you know, I managed a restaurant. I worked as a way. The one job that I found, and, and you're absolutely right, exceptionally difficult, uh, was being a server uh, or a waiter at the time. And um, just so hard to balance all the different things that the different tables need. I found it to be, you're exactly right, very difficult work to, to, to really be able to handle all the different requirements of you and to, and to serve, you know, to serve well. So, yeah, same here. Uh, restaurant work was my first introduction to work in the United States. Yeah, and, and I, I enjoyed it. There are lots of aspects that I really enjoyed about it. When you're on, when you're on a good team, you got a good crew um and and everybody's doing their job well um it's a fun night and then you know you're you're closing the restaurant at on on a friday or saturday you're not getting out of there until three o'clock in the morning (laughs) yeah yep (laughs) you know so you know it's it's no it's it's good but i i want um i think there's a lot of work that is real work in this country that is not well respected by uh sort of the academia elite classes and uh um, it's, it's all part of the function of the economy and it's all work and it's all, it's all worthy of a, of a living wage. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You know, I grew up, uh, on a farm and, um, in Lebanon, my, my father actually had a PhD from Columbia and worked in engineering in New York. And then he said, I'm, I'm just quitting it all. Moved back to Lebanon, his, his, his country of birth, his home country, and decided to start organic farming back in the eighties. Um, after the war. And, um, you know, he, he said, I want you to learn how to be a farmer. And so I would wake up two, three in the morning to go irrigate the land. You know, the water would be, would, would come down in the early hours of the morning. So I'd go in these huge plots of land and water the land and weed the soil. And I had big calluses on my hands and it was, you know, incredible experience work. Um, as you say, any kind of work, uh, that that it that a person does you know um, should be should should pay absolutely a living wage should be dignified should be respected any kind of work you know absolutely. so now you did uh, what I consider uh, you know uh, as I mentioned I think last time you know Lila worked in nursing for many years and I think that's one of the most noble professions but you worked in teaching which is to me the other one that I look up to so much. Uh, we talked a bit about it, but if you want to talk a little bit more about about um, your work as a teacher, um, I don't remember exactly what we talked about last week. But you know, I, I yeah, I got I got an out I'd gotten out of college with a political science degree and decided I didn't want to go into politics, which is what I initially uh, thought I was going to do, um, and then uh, got got a job. Um, got a job in Albuquerque, New Mexico, working at a uh, small private elementary school where I taught um, music and PE classes because I didn't have to be a license. 
have a have a teaching license to do that to teach music and PE specialty classes to a private elementary school. Uh, and I ran a summer rec program, driving the kids to the zoo and the science machine uh, museum. Um, and and I ran I even ran the winter concerts. Right, I I put together the the spring and the winter concerts where all of the grade levels would uh, uh, sing a song to the parents that they would come in and I you know coached them on how to do the singing and played guitar with them and. Um, so it was, it was an incredible amount of fun. I knew I didn't want to stay in elementary school, but that was also when I decided to go back to school um, and, and get my education degree from the College of Santa Fe. So I did night school for two hours uh, for two years. And, you know, that was that was all private pay, no loan. Oh, I shouldn't say I got a loan, but I, I, I paid it right off. Uh, you know, it was it wasn't terribly expensive at that time um, mm-hmm. in the late in the late 90s to do. Um, I don't I don't remember how many credits credits it was, but it was something like 60 or 90 credits uh of of night night school to do that but um i went uh moved back up to washington state um in 1999 um and wanted to be uh, a high school teacher and ended up doing some subbing uh in a school where they hired me right off the bat because they saw that i had the skills and then i had to go back and take some more classes because I didn't have a math endorsement, so uh, I think I think I probably had to take two more classes to get um, to get an actual math endorsement. So I ended up teaching math uh, primarily uh, uh, for um, eighteen years, and um, and, uh, and and some of your students. Uh, I just want to say some of your students have recently sent out emails on your behalf. I think we talked about yes, it last time briefly. I have. I always had a great relationship with my students. You know, um, I was the teacher. I mean, I literally had students who would come to class, you know, struggling students, struggling uh, in life. And, you know, they came to my classroom because, you know, and told me, you know, I and I feel I have I, I feel like. You know, I don't want to oversell myself here because it's a very humbling experience um, to to be a teacher. But I would have I had a kid who told me, you know, my my classroom was the place where he felt safe. He didn't have a great home life. He was doing terrible in school in general. And I begged him, uh, (laughs) I said, come on. Um, I I won't say his name, but, you know, I was like, he didn't want to do any work for me. Uh, He just wanted to be in the class. And I was like, well, I'm just going to continue to encourage you to do the work. And he was like, I so appreciate you for trying. I'm not going to do it, but (laughs) I really appreciate you for trying. I just really enjoy being in your room because I feel like it's a place where, you know, I, I feel feel safe. And I had that kind of relationship with a, just a lot of my students and I worked them hard. I mean, I worked, um, I did, uh, I taught mostly upper level math, which was algebra two honors, algebra two pre-calculus. I did a lot of, um, teaching of pre-calculus as a college in the high school. So if they took my class, they could, they could, and they got a C or better, they could get college credit for it, the local community college. Um, I did that for a number of years. I taught uh, advanced placement statistics, which, you know, as far as a math class goes, sort of an all around math class, but everybody should take, take a statistics class. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's fantastic way to develop an understanding of the world around you in terms of numbers. Um, and, uh, you know, pr- prediction and, and that kind of thing. So I love teaching statistics, taught a little bit of calculus. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I actually, now that I, now that I hear all this, I'm going to tell my teenage daughter that if she needs any math tutoring help, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, you know what? I do that. I mean, people, people come to me still all the time. Hey, can I, can I get a tutoring hour with you? And I do it. I'm more than happy to do it. I'm more than happy to sit down wow. um, and, and, and work with, 
you know, kids, you know, of, uh, you know, my friends, you know, they're, they're mm-hmm. like, my, my kids are struggling in math because math can be a struggle. And, um, yeah. And a, a, I, my feeling is a lot of the struggle in math comes, um, from one kids whose parents never did well in math. And so, uh, they, they kind of grow up with this, like, um, it's, like maybe it's a genetic thing. Like I'm not good at math because my parents were never good at math. My parents, I tell parents, don't ever tell your kids you weren't good at math. You know? <laughs> right, right. Give, but, and, and also I don't think that we do math particularly well at a young age in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I look at math as somewhat of a specialty class. And I think in elementary school, they should have specialty math teachers. So you get a, pull out class to go to PE, you get a pull out class to go to art. I think you should have a pull out class in elementary school um, to do math. And I think kids would be coming out of math uh, with better number sense. Um, You know, I I taught a lot of the kids in high school uh, were coming out of middle school, not having passed any of the state assessments, like all three years that they were in middle school. Um, And then they throw those kids right into algebra uh, algebra one and expect them to be successful. And I'm like, Hey, you know, you have not, you have not sort of graduated these kids in the right way. And I think that that happens, uh, more in math than it does anywhere else. Um, and so once you have like year after year of compounding, um, not great math teaching or, you know, not great math expectations, and then you get to high school level math, um, and there hasn't been good preparation, I think it can be disastrous. I yeah, always offer- and- <laughs> now, what I was going to say, uh, you actually triggered a thought, Jason. I, I, um, I didn't mean to interrupt if you want to finish no, your no. thought. Well, yeah. I, was, I was simply going to say that, you know, I offered these fixes because when I moved to Marysville, um, uh, which is where I currently live, and I moved back here um, after having uh, left the country and gone to teach in Cairo and then came back, um, the uh, I, they hired me to be the math expert. Um, and so I was hired in a middle school where none of the other math teachers had a ton of great math experience and, and none of them were endorsed in math. And so I was the only one who was like really a math expert. And so I offered all of these fixes, but administratively they did not, you know, trying to get a, a school administrators to actually implement some big changes. Well, it's no different than trying to get a political system to implement some big changes. They're very resistant to big changes, um, even if what they've got going on right now is not working. And I always said, you know, once you make that, because most administrators were former teachers, um, and I always say, you know, once once you take that step into administration, you're not an educator anymore, you're a politician. So, you know, I, I ran into a lot of challenges trying to get what I knew as a math teacher was going to be the right thing for my kids, for their future, and for the system, sort of systemically, um, but just ran into a lot of resistance. Yeah, no, it's 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 fabulous. It's so political. Um, let me ask you, I want to I want to segue into one last thing before we get into the current campaign. Talk to me about your work for Bernie Sanders. Oh, so, yeah, um, I was so excited uh, with many other uh, local people here when when Bernie announced in I think it was April of 2015 um, and uh we had the caucus system here in Washington state. And so what had happened was I went to, uh, uh, I had known about Bernie. 
um, for a long time. I had listened to Air America. If you remember Air America when it was on the air and I used to listen to, mm-hmm. you know, um, got all of the hosts back then, Randy Rhodes and Stephanie Miller. And um, I think a lot of us on the left now would consider that more liberal radio than leftist radio. But, you know, it's everything everything is an evolution in our minds i guess but um i was very into air america listened to tom hartman fairly religiously um and bernie used to do a spot on on uh, with tom hartman on fridays called brunch with bernie um and so when he announced i knew i knew who he was i was like oh my god this is fantastic what a what an opportunity um and i went to uh, a a caucus track. I tried, you know, scramble around, try to figure out how it can get get involved. And I went to a caucus training. Um, There's a friend of mine locally. I mean, he's a friend now. But I didn't know who he was then. Um, and he was offering a, you know, learn how to caucus for Bernie so that we can get Bernie the, you know, the Washington State endorsement here, um, or the the caucus delegates. So. So I went to this training um, and my friend, um, his name is Mario. He, he actually just lives about three miles away from me now. Um, and uh, he, he told me, he's like, because he asked us to get up and tell our story. Why are you interested in Bernie? You know, what is, um, uh, what is it about Bernie that's gotten you inspired? And so I got up in front of a room of people and I, and I just went right down the line about the political change we need in this country. And Mario stopped me after the show, sort of everybody had cleared out. He was like, I want you to help me train other people. He's like, cause you're, cause you're fantastic at this. Um, and so Mario and a couple other people and I, uh, we just put together a whole system of getting people to understand how the caucus system in Washington state worked, when you needed to show up, what, what you needed to do to, cause caucusing is, you know, you're sitting in a group in your local precinct with eight or 12 other people. And you're trying to convince them that they should, uh, cast their vote for Bernie because there's it's a whole systemic thing where you you know you you win delegates at a precinct level and then you go on to the legislative district level and you win more delegates and then you go up to the congressional district level and you win more delegates and so you know we were really trying to get people who were motivated um, who were passionate um, to to speak well and convince other people that they should be cast, casting their vote for Bernie. And, and we did that, um, a lot of it in Western Washington, but we also reached out to a lot of other places around the state um, to kind of offer help. You know, here's how to do this. And we, we had whole communication networks, um, you know, making sure people knew um, when to show up, where to show up, uh, how to bring allies with them. And we ended up wishing, winning the state here for, um, for Bernie in 2016, uh, 73%. Um, and then... Uh, a lot. And then, you know, there was the whole convention in Philadelphia, which, you know, I, I didn't go to. I was I knew I was not going to be able to go to that. So I didn't try and run as a as a higher level delegate. Um, but I did a lot of guiding of people along the way to get them through that process. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people were very, very disappointed with a lot of elected officials in our state because pretty much everybody, even though the state went for Bernie uh, massively, um, the, the, our elected officials for, you know, Rick Larson, who I'm running against and all the other, uh, Democrats in the state, they all cast their vote for Hillary. So people were, you know, people were righteously pissed. They were like, it should have been at least, um, it should have been at least a, uh, uh, a, a proportional split 
uh, on those delegates. But I mean, but that's the whole systemic thing that we we ran into where, you know, all of these soup, that was the super delegates issue. Right. So all the super delegates ended up um, precasting their votes uh, for Hillary. And so people were pissed. And so a lot of the people that I brought because I brought people into the party locally um, to try and build up that progressive Bernie oriented uh, cadre of people locally to try and, you know, take over uh, state party politics. And a lot of them walked away after 2016. They said, there's nothing we can do. This is that it is, it is absolutely so rigged. And here I am six years later and I'm still, I'm still out there trying to get people to, to sign up and, and uh, be a part of this at the grassroots level within the democratic party. Because and, that, and, and let me add, Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no, you, Jason, has this, has that experience with Bernie helped you in organizing for your camp? Because you, you ran last uh, cycle, too, and you came really close yeah. to getting into the top two. How, how is it affecting how you campaign? Because that's pretty amazing experience to be able to do that. Caucuses are not easy. One, one, of, the things that it, one of the things that it helped me with is knowing that there are other people out there who are as passionate as I am um, about the pol- the progressive policies that we need to get passed. I mean, really what it comes down to, this is all about policy and trying to give people an avenue to lend their voice to a system that is, is resistant to change. Um, that is, that leans towards the money, um, and try and get them to kind of remain in the system. And so, you know, as you have seen online, I, I end up with a hundred, a bunch of people telling me, you know, I can't vote for you because you're a Democrat and you're running as a Democrat and you're stuck, you know, so therefore you're representative of what is essentially a corrupt party. And I, you know, I still say yes, but, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. um, I, I am, you know, as you know, I am fully in support of a multi-party system. Um, I, but the majority of the electorate is not there yet. So if I, if I ran my campaign outside of the Democratic Party right now, I would not get the traction that I needed to be successful. And really what we need, what I need, uh, what I'm doing this for is to win. You know, this is not a, it's not a vanity campaign. So being, being a part of, um, you know, the organizing that I did with the Bernie campaign, um, it helped me sort of stay true to message. Uh, you know, the, the Bernie, Bernie had clear, like, here are the things that we need to do with our government. We, we have to stay on message with Medicare for all. We have to stay on message with the green new deal, uh, with living wages and all of those things that Bernie had for his platform, um, that, you know, I was able to go out there and sell people on those things to bring them into the Bernie movement. I am able to do that same thing with my own campaign, um, you know, with the passion, with the policy understanding and talk to people like, you know, I'm going to meet people who are resistant to, you know, why, you know, why, why Medicare for all the, I, I actually had somebody email me the other day, you know, the, the ACA is great. And because I had learned so much about Medicare for all and why I was able to respond to her, you know, the, the ACA may have been the best that we could have done back in 2009, um, which I, I disagree with anyway, but, you know, here are all of the faults of the ACA and here's why Medicare for all is so much better. Um, and she <laughs> flipped, she's like, she, she told me, she said, I didn't know. Um, I always go with what the sort of democratic talking heads tell me. Um, but you know, I just gave her the resources and I said, you can go look all this stuff up yourself. I'm not trying to sell you on anything. Um, 
you know, that is, you know, the quote unquote, a bill of goods. I mean, the information is there. The Congressional Budget Office, you know, has has even written a report on it. So Mm -hmm. it gave me a lot of confidence. I think one of the one of the things that it really did was gave me a lot of confidence working within the Bernie campaign. Um, And as a volunteer, I, I was never I was never paid to work for Bernie. Um, but this was all the passion, right? This is all, I was so passionate about Bernie in 2016 and 2020. Like I, I wasn't diminished. Like Bernie came back in 2020 and I was like, hell yes. Okay. We're going to do this again. Um, so, so it gave me a lot of confidence to, to speak to people on issues. And that has helped me immensely in my organizing, especially right now when, as we're going through all of these endorsement processes with all of my local legislative districts and, um, you know, Democratic Party organizations that I can sit there in a Zoom meeting with, you know, a dozen other people and and convince them that we have got to change direction. Like the Democratic Party as a whole has got to get off the corporate money and we've got to change direction on policy. Um, so I, I mean, I would uh, my, speaking for myself, I, I obviously work with Democrats for all of my political career, but I've really, as I've moved further to the left, you may be one of the last few, uh, you know, candidates with a D that I will work with. And we're working together um, because you really are true to leftist principles in a very profound way. Uh, I've had my fingers in a lot of activist stuff. But I do think, um, I do think it would be uh, really you know, if I could win this race and have a national platform to speak to people in the same in the same way on a national level that I'm able to speak to people locally, um, I think that there can be some real importance in that um, because I know my own mind and my own principles and people. Well, how come you're not you know, how can you convince us that you're not going to be just like everybody else that we get? Past? My answer is like, well, I have to I know what I've got in my own head. I mean, for you. Uh, you, the proof will be in the pudding, right? And the proof will be, um, get me elected and see what happens. I'm pretty sure I know, uh, how I'm going to respond to things. Um, and I think you'll be happy, <laughs> but, but I really can't convince you of that. Uh, just, you know, just take a chance. I mean, that's what I've got to say to a lot of people on the left here in my own district. Like it's, yeah, I mean, it's words, not, not going to, it's not going to kill you to put my name down on the, on fill my name out on the ballot. So that's really all I'm asking is a vote. Exactly. Tell me more about Rick Larson, your opponent. I mean, he 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 symbolizes exactly what it is we need yeah. to get rid of in the Democratic Party. He is he is the quintessential corporate Democrat. He really is. Now, I will say he is not of all of the, you know, sort of the minutia details of Rick Larson as of all the Democrats who were elected in 2000. And that's how long he's been in office. He came in when George W. Bush came in, um, in 2001 was, he was sworn in, but of all the Democrats in the house who were elected at that, that time, he has, um, the, the least floor speaking time. Um, so he's not an, he's not an issues advocate. He's very, he flies under the radar. I mean, other people call him a workhorse, but you know, he's a workhorse for corporations. He doesn't have, you know, he doesn't put his name on, on a whole lot of bills that, that, you know, get passed. I mean, I think he's done the, you know, a few naming of post offices and, uh, and he is essentially on the hook 
to the fossil fuel industry uh, and the military industrial complex. He's the fourth ranking Dem on the House Armed Services Committee. He is the the chair of the Aviation Depart- Subcommittee of Transportation. He's now running to be chair of trans- transportation. And his funding, he gets funded, uh, uh, two-thirds of his funding comes from PACs. Uh, and a lot of those PACs are, are industry association PACs, um, you know, uh, telecom, telecom, fossil fuels, uh, like I said, military industrial complex. And they are spending a lot of money earmarking uh, in the primary. They know that I'm running a serious campaign against him, and we looked at we've looked at his filings, and they will earmark money for the primary. Well, they're not earmarking that money to fight a Republican because they know the Republicans in this district got no chance. They're earmarking that money to spend against me. Um, and it's interesting he presents this. I, I, I we both did an endorsement interview for a local legislative district a couple of weeks ago, um, and the they were shared with me. I got to watch my own back, and and I got to watch his back. Um, And he was asked about corporate money and his response to that is corporate, you know, PAC money is not corporate money. That money comes from people. Um, So he said it's it's illegal for politicians, uh, for federal politicians to take corporate money uh, and that PAC money is not corporate money. Well, you know, you can dodge around that all you want to. But the reality is um, when when uh, Amazon is funding you uh, to the tune of, you know, twenty five hundred five thousand dollars a year, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origins pack is giving you money. Uh, Verizon is giving you money. Um, uh, what is it here? Uh, Puget Sound Energy, which is our large our local natural gas supplier. Um, huge funder. Boeing, huge funder. So don't you know, you it comes off as really, really disingenuous. And you saw the people in the meeting that he was, uh, who have been supporters of his in the past, you know, prior to my challenge, they have, you know, been, you know, Rick's our guy, he does good things for the district. But I think things are changing, like the direction of politics and what our needs for the future are, are changing so much, but that, that they are recognizing that that corporate money is getting the way in the way of good things that we need passing and he is very, very defensive when, when he's called out on it. Um, he, I mean, he really, he really doesn't want to, I mean, he said, you know, it's, it's insulting that, that people would think that I would be, um, uh, influenced by this corporate money. And, you know, if, if people think that, then I'll just give it back. And I'm like, all right, buddy, go ahead give it back. I want to see. Yeah. Right. They, yeah. They, they all, <laughs> Jason, um, let's talk about your actual core beliefs and your platform, just a couple of, you know, basics, like what are, what are the key things that you want to accomplish if and when you get elected? Sure. Um, it's very easy and it's been consistently three things, you know, what are my top three? My top three are easy. Now, one of the things, as we all know about, you know, truly, uh, systemically, um, chain changing, uh, policy, a lot of things are all just entangled with each other and you can't really go after one thing without changing other things. Um, and, and they all need to be changed and they all need to be changed uh, as quickly as possible. So um, the first the first thing is we've got to get corporate money out of politics. We've got to have campaign finance reform. Um, we've got to have public, uh, public funding of elections. Um, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, 
a, a lot of this has to do with Citizens United and the dark money, and certainly we need to overturn Citizens United. Um, but, you know, there hasn't been a campaign finance. I mean, I think people identified this 30 years ago with the McCain-Feingold uh, campaign finance reform bill that didn't pass. Um, and uh, a lot of the Democratic Party is really... Um, they they justify taking corporate money. They say, yo, no, we we don't, you know, we're not here for the corporations, but we've got to take their money because the Republicans take it also. And they will just they will just outspend us uh, and win elections without spending. And and I tell them, well, you have made the case for supporting campaign finance reform. Well, we'll never get campaign finance reform passed because we don't have Republican support, which is why I look at what we've got going on right now with the Democrats in control of the Senate and the House. Um, and of course, you know, we get stuck in the in the Senate with the filibuster, but they don't. The re- reality is they're so tied to that corporate money, that corporate funding that they don't even try. And so I want to be a voice for we have to change the way we do politics in this country. Um, I don't I don't know how much money was spent on the 2020 election, uh, but it's it's an obscene amount of money. And it's un, it's unnecessary when that money could be going to fund other things um, and that that our, our communities need. And and I think uh, somebody somebody had said that if everybody in the country, if every voter in the country contributed a uh, call it a head tax of ten dollars, you could fund adequately every state, local, federal election in the country. Um, And I think we've got to we've got to move towards that. We've got to get this giant um, uh, behemoth of money out of politics. Elections should not be about how much money you can raise. Um, and, nor, and nor should they have, and let me just add, nor should they have organizations like the Lincoln Project that, yeah. that, that, that skimmed, what, like between 50 and $100 million from liberals and Democrats. These are all for the, these are the same Republicans who effectively created the, uh, the environment for Trump to get elected sure. there <laughs> well, and just they, line they, their pockets with money. They're they're the same people that took us to war in Iraq, um, mm-hmm. which was one yep. of the things that you know. As I as I was a teacher, you know, I was going down to Seattle uh, on an almost weekly basis in two thousand three and two thousand four, protesting on street corners in Seattle about not going to uh, Iraq, which is another thing that really stuck with a lot of my students. Um, that that they knew I was passionate about um, the anti-war movement and and uh, you know so I, I was I was able to uh, influence them in a lot of ways um, with with my activism but as policy again um, Medicare for all I think we've got to get a uh, at least a Medicare for all um, for so no, cut the profit out of it cut private insurance out of it um, you know you you the the there's there's no reason I, that anybody should be profiting from simply being a a middleman essentially uh, between um, a, a, a doctor and a patient and that's all the that's all a health insurance company is they're just they're just grifting it's a parasitic industry um, so we want to get a Medicare for all system passed um, I am working on that locally with my group um, whole Washington we're running a ballot initiative in the absence of a federal bill we're going to try and get it passed um, on the state level um, maybe 
uh, I mean, we, we meet the same resistance uh, with corporate money. I mean, the, the Washington state legislature, uh, the health committees get bags of money from the pharmaceutical industry, private health insurance. And, um, and uh, you know, they, they, they don't want to, they don't want to take it up because again, that's, that's who their funders are. I mean, these are the people on the health committee. So, you know, and another thing with politics that I gripe about constantly is that the people who are in charge of the policies and the oversight of particular um, uh, sectors of our society are are taking the most money from the industries that will profit from, you know, whatever. Uh, and and so there's just an immense amount of corruption at, at the federal level, but also at the state level um, when we talk about trying to get policy pack, passed. So Medicare for all, the health care um, system um, is is criminal in this country. Uh, and then the other thing is we've got to tackle the environment. Um, and so I'm a I'm a huge supporter of the Green New Deal. I was uh, identified as a Green New Deal champion um, I, that was put together by the Sunrise Movement. But it was a, a tons of organizations who are in part of of like promoting Green New Deal champions. So my my identification as a Green New Deal champion is not an endorsement from those organizations because the Sierra, you know, this is this is how crazy things get with endorsements. The Sierra Club is a part of that Green New Deal coalition, uh, but they've endorsed my opponent, Rick Larson, even though he's got an he's got an absolutely terrible record on climate change. such to such to the degree that in 2018 there was an article written that identified the 61 worst Democrats on climate issues, and that is the money that they take and the votes that they have made. Uh, they called them the Pro Extinction Caucus. <laughs> and, oh my, that's that's scary! And, wow. And Rick and Rick Larson was the only Washington State Democrat who was identified as being a pro extinction Democrat. So he talked, wow. you know, he, he'll get he'll get in these endorsement meetings and talk about, you know, the the thing he says. What people will ask him, well, you have not you have not endorsed the Green New Deal, and he says, well, you have to look at the things that I have done. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't feel like I have to sign on to this Green New Deal thing to, to, to be, you know, be considered a um, good on climate. Well, you know, the reality is you're terrible on climate. Um, so he hasn't signed on to the Green New Deal. But the Sierra, Sierra Club has endorsed him. And, and this whole, like, <clears throat> I'll just say this organizational endorsement aspect of running for office Um, like, are you going to, do you have endorsements of local unions? Do you have endorsements? Planned Parenthood is another one. Well, Planned Parenthood has, has endorsed, uh, Rick Larson. Uh, My question to my, my constituents is who is going to fight harder for you, right? Because Rick is not a leader on issues. Um, there were, uh, for the LGBTQ community, the Democrat Democrats um, uh, on mass, like 160, 180 of them had written these letters to the Supreme Court uh, in 2013 and 2015, um, asking them to uh, repeal DOMA was one of them um, and asking them to support mar- marriage equality. Rick was one of fewer than 30 Democrats who did not sign either of those letters. So for for. Um, you know, issues of, I would say, progressive leadership, he's completely absent. He will go along with like uh, marijuana legalization, for instance, which I'm a huge advocate for. Uh, He has over four times uh, voted to continue to allow the Department of Justice to prosecute for cannabis in states where it has already been legalized, like his own state of Washington. Um, But now he has in 2020, he signed and 
this just recently in uh, 2022, um, he uh, co-sponsored the Moore Act. Like he voted for the Moore Act uh, to federally legalize it. Um, he wouldn't be there if I hadn't pushed him. And if there weren't, if it wasn't a matter of like, I think only six Democrats total voted against it. Like if there was a larger coalition of Democrats voting against it, he would probably be in that 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 larger cadre who was voting against it. But well, because, see, but, well, if I can let me just go ahead. make one point. Yeah, because you raised an issue that I didn't want to uh, uh, forget. And that is that that whole endorsement process, a lot of the major so-called progressive or liberal Democratic uh, organizations will always endorse the incumbent, even though yes. the progressive or leftist challengers are much better on the issues. That drives me absolutely just, uh, it's a, just it's it's a infuriating thing. They're looking they're looking at a 22 year incumbent mm-hmm. who is who is I'll you know, just be honest. I mean, he's he's the odds on favorite to retain the seat because incumbents already are and they want to maintain that relationship. Um, but that's so, a, but, that, but well, it's awful, Jason, because what happens is. They are endorsing, they're putting their full weight behind the wrong, you know, the, the, the candidates who, who do not support their core issues. It's a, really just a terrible, just scandalous. Let me do this. I want to see if, if, if Scott or Stephanie or Walter, anybody wants to join the conversation. Just, yeah, just please do. talk. And, and let me say this, Jason, what I'd like to do going forward, if you're okay with this, is we should do this weekly, but instead of just talking about your campaign, I would love for you for the remainder of your campaign to be sort of um, like a co-host. And we'll talk about all the particular issues and devote entire um, episodes to specific issues. There's so much, you know, gun violence is one with this recent white supremacist shooting. Yeah. Climate is another. Um, COVID and and this suddenly we... We have a government that now pretends the pandemic never happened and doesn't exist now, even though rates are rising everywhere. I mean, again, this is not an issue we've been talking about right now, but New York Times breaking news. A third of Americans live in areas with such high COVID levels now that they should consider wearing masks indoors, whether local leaders required or not. A third of Americans are now living. I mean, the pandemic isn't, isn't gone. So every one of these issues, really, we should devote you know, uh, uh, the, the right amount of time to. So in successive weeks, hopefully you and I can drill down into very specific issues and, and have people participate in the conversations and, um, and talk about how it reflects in your race, um, specifically. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I don't know, Scott, Stephanie, Walter, anybody. Yeah, know, please jump just, in. Jump yeah. In. Lilo's just, Oh, go ahead. Either, either one of you, you can both unmute and talk like this is an open conversation. We're all friends. Um, so anybody who wants to jump in. Stephanie can go first. Oh, thanks. I um, I guess I. I mean, I'm really just kind of following and 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 trying to understand because I've never run for political office, and I I have the utmost respect for you for doing this. I think I'm just. I just don't see. I guess my my whole thing is I'm trying to understand. Is it seems like they've made it impossible for challengers now. I mean, I, I don't know how anybody can can win when this whole system is set up the way it is. So what keeps you going? 
it's it's a good question, and I struggle with it uh, on an almost daily basis. I will not I will not lie to you about this. Um, there was a there was a point um, back in November when I first started to talk to Peter um, a little bit more about and Peter and I have been you know associated on Twitter for a while, but back in November I started to talk to Peter a little bit more about my race, and um, they had uh, they had re- done the redistricting right. Um, and so all, all the boundaries of the congressional, uh, districts and legislative districts everywhere across the country have changed based on the 2020 census numbers. And they cut me out of the district. Um, it, it, the whole, the process here in Washington is that, uh, you had two representatives, two state representatives and two state, um, senators, uh, and one from each party of each of those. So four people, uh, proposed maps. And so their map proposals went public in mid-October and the map proposals, none of them had me cut out of the district. Um, And I know I got some insider information that said, you know, Rick Larson's team has the ear of the redistricting commission. And when the final map proposal came out in mid-November, they had sliced me out of the district by about two and a half miles. Now, for a federal district, you don't have to live in district. Um, it is it is not a requirement. And so this district that I'm in has always been I lived in the district for 20 years um, and uh, I still feel like the district as it stands right now is my home. Um, and uh, so it doesn't impact me in terms of knowing the district and representing the district. But I felt like, you know, Larson's team got in there. They said they just said, you know, we can reasonably slice this little piece out where Jason lives. Um, and that's going to make him more difficult. And I almost, you know, I was on the verge of quitting. I and mean, P- Peter can tell you, I, you know, he, he, you know, we had a conversation and I was like, I don't know, this might be it for me. That was just that was a blow. Um, but uh, Peter and others convinced me to stay in the race. And I'm so glad that I did <laughs> because we're doing, you know, here we are six months later and I think we're doing fantastically well. Um, but it is, it's, it's uphill the, the whole, the whole way. It is just constantly uphill. Um, my local County, uh, the, the Snohomish County Democrats uh, just last week, they knew that we have our whole, all of our local endorsements are coming up, the counties and the legislative districts and the voter guide that's going to go out to the public. Uh, I need to have my statement in. Well, it's important to the voters to see who you're endorsed by. Um, and they literally changed the rules for endorsement uh, about two weeks ago. Um, it would have been a 50% threshold of the membership body for me to get endorsed. They made it because their endorsements committee wasn't going to recommend me because they're completely hostile to me. They they changed the rule to make it a two-thirds. And, you know, my I was just like, okay, you bastards. Uh, what I did was I withdrew my request for endorsement. It's like, fuck it. Right. You know, you're going to make me fight this one. No, I'm I'm not. I'm not even going to give you the satisfaction now of not endorsing me by vote. I'm just going to withdraw my request because there's plenty of other people around uh, who are going to endorse me. And so I'll go there. So, yeah, they're going to they're going to they're going to nickel and dime you. They're going to try and death you by a thousand cuts. Um, but uh, I know right now that I've got first of all, I've, I've got. Uh, an excellent shot of being on, of making it past the primary. Um, my my campaign outreach is ph- phenomenal. We've knocked more doors. I know we've knocked more doors than the incumbent has. 
Um, he doesn't feel he's never felt like he's had to work for it before. Uh, but we, we definitely know he's feeling like he has to work for it right now. Um, our fundraising is not as great as we would like it to be. I mean, it's we're never going to match the incumbent with fundraising. Um, but we have enough fundraising and enough local fundraising, people who are willing to throw in five bucks and say, give me a yard sign, give me a bumper sticker, that we are extremely confident that it's going to be me um, and him on the November ballot. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of good things, you know, and if we end up losing, you know, we'll, we'll reassess, we'll reassess there, you know, but right now, just knowing that I've got a, a better shot this year than I did last year of being on the general election ballot. And I only missed it by 1% of the primary vote last year. Um, that's enough to keep me motivated. And also knowing that, a lot of my constituents are counting on me. Um, it's like being a classroom teacher, knowing that a lot of your students are counting on you to be a good teacher and do the best thing for them that you can. I feel like I'm in that position of responsibility for my constituents right now. A lot of people have invested in seeing me win and I'm going to see it through, but that keeps me afloat. You know, despite all the bullshit that the establishment pulls, knowing that I've got people uh, pulling for me, that keeps me afloat. No, that's great, Jason. And, and let me, uh, and Stephanie, thank you for the question. It's, yeah, uh, it's a great. Yeah, it's we're a, fortunate to have you. And the nice thing, Stephanie, about Jason, and the reason I'm working with him is that uh, if you do get into the top two, Jason, um, you know, this can become a very important race because there are very few, very few candidates out there um, with a real leftist um, sort of mindset in, in a position to actually win, right? And I think there are a lot of disappointments with the squad. Um, I don't want to really get into that right now, but a lot of people felt that, okay, these would be true leftist or progressive champions, and they started voting um, on, you know, with the establishment, supporting Biden, supporting Pelosi. So there's a lot of disappointment there. So, you know, someone like you, I know you're going to just speak your own mind and have your own mindset, um, even when you do win. Scott, you were going to ask a question. I want to wrap soon. I always like to keep these within the hour. Um, did you have a question, Scott? Sure. Um, well, just just first, I want to say, um, you know, public financing of campaigns has always been an issue that I've supported, but haven't really given a lot of thought about. And when you said when just when you said, you know, a ten dollar, I would I would call it a tax from from everybody. It, I was looking up some statistics, you know, uh, there's 250 million adults, uh, people over 18 in America. And in 20 in 2019 and 2020, uh, $4 billion was spent by, by candidates. And so $10 a year, that's $2.5 billion a year, $5 billion. That's, that's more than enough. And it, if it's spread around to, to, you know, act, you know, challenger candidates, it actually puts, you know, pressure on people. It it balances things. It, it uh, opens up, you know, so that candidate, you know, our Congress people don't have to spend so much time on the phone calling up all their donors trying to get money. Yep. So that that is an issue that that just just since you said that really sparks to me as as something to, to get behind. Um, my my question was related to um, just kind of I, so I live in uh, Central Coast, California. We're kind of a purple urban suburban but very red 
uh, rural area where there's a lot of farming, a lot of so. It, so like our, Sal- our, Salinas. Uh, it's it's uh, San Luis Obispo. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I'm involved with my local DSA, and we're we're still relatively small. You know, we're not nobody's seeking out our endorsement or our our help really. Um, but what do you have any advice for for me and my my friends to for the candidates that we support, how we can help where or like where our efforts would be best spent? Oh, that's you know, that's a good question. Um, I would do letters to the editor. Um, everybody can write a letter. Uh, I have encouraged a lot of local people and I haven't followed up on it, but, you know, we've got. Uh, you know, a, anywhere from a dozen to 20 uh, newspapers and online publications um, who all have letter to the editor sections and they get read by um, segments of society. So if you're looking at like, you know, what is a low effort, <laughs> you know, really write 100, uh, 200 words of why you support a particular candidate or why you support a particular issue. And those get read by a surprising number of people um, who who are still and and a lot of that is read by sort of older generations who still um, who still read the newspaper. Right. Um, and, you know, they may have moved to online reading of it, but they still read it and they still read the letters. Um, and I think My parents can, definitely still do. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you can you can get your ideas out um, and just, you know, just have have everybody in your group figure out what issue you want to tackle and everybody write letters to all of your area newspapers um, and you'll get some of them published. And so the goal is I mean, one of our goals here as progressives is we're trying to we're trying to change a consciousness in our community. Um, And so you got to go with where they're receiving their information. And that is just uh, that is a low cost way um, to, to just write a letter and send an email. Um, and you'll, you'll end up reaching some people. Um, so, so that's, that's one way, um, uh, off, off the top of my head, you know, um, canvas, canvas your neighborhoods. I think people, um, are, are reluctant to talk to their neighbors a lot. Um, but one of the things that, that we have been doing with my campaign is actually one of the best parts of running a campaign is like you have a legitimate reason to get out and talk to people. Um, and we've had, I, I think one of the things, again, going back to what Stephanie asked is how do you keep going? Having conversations at doors and realizing that people in your community feel the same way about issues that you do, um, you're you're building your network that way. So so door to door conversations, if you can find an issue, um, if you can uh, I don't know how your city sets it up, but if you can run like a local ballot initiative for your community, what do you want to do? You want to have a, a fifteen dollar minimum wage in San Luis Obispo or you want to um have uh you know ban facial recognition by the police in san luis obispo and you figure out how to file a ballot initiative and then you get your people going out door to door and talking to people about why they should vote for this or that ballot initiative that is another great way to take a single issue and um and start engaging with your community and you pick up allies along the way when you do that up here in bellingham in my district uh there's an organization that is dsa based um 
called People First Bellingham, and they filed four different ballot initiatives. Uh, one was for renters' protections um, that a landlord could not, if they increased your rent more than I think it was like eight percent in a year, that they had to pay for three months. Um, of your new rental or they had to pay your moving fees or something like that. And so, you know, it, it actually, I don't remember if that one passed, but they all got on the ballot. Like they, they went out and they gathered signatures for these ballot initiatives and all four of these initiatives got on the ballot and two of them passed. I don't remember which, but those are small local ways that you can engage with the community on policy. And they're really effective. You know, Jason, um, you uh, yeah, Scott. Thank you for 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 the question and 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 um, just for for being here and participating. Jason, you're quite knowledgeable about all this stuff. This, that's why I asked you initially about the the Bernie stuff. Um, clearly, you know what you're doing on the ground and how to organize. You know, organizing is such a, a fundamental component of effective activism. You can't you can't be a good activist if you if if you either don't organize yourself or work with talented organizers. It's such a, such a cru- crucial component of bringing about change on the ground. Well, let's do this. Let's wrap. Jason, um, I, I definitely would love to have all your knowledge base on all these different issues in the weeks ahead. So we'll talk about a lot of different stuff. Um, I really want to thank Stephanie, Scott, Walter, Leela, um, and of course you, Jason, for being here. You know, uh, I, I consider you all friends and I really, really appreciate each of you for participating in these conversations. So Jason, thank you. You'll, I assume Jason, you'll be back, um, hopefully next week and we can talk yeah, about we'll, some we'll specific figure it out issues. Next week. Yeah. Wonderful. Can I ask what, what Jason's website is? I'll get my parents to donate some money. Oh, yeah, that would be fantastic. It's callforcongress.com. My last name, call C-A-L-L, just like phone call. F-O-R, congress.com, callforcongress.com, very easy. We'll get you some tonight. Thank you. I appreciate thank you. that. Thank you. That's very kind of you, Scott. Thank you. So so thank you all. I hope you have a great rest of your evening, and uh, hopefully we'll see you all next week or the following week. And um, have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Take care, Peter. everyone. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Bye, all. Night.